Harvard Church, you're dismissed. Parents, if you haven't signed them in, go back there to the computer, sign them in so you can get a tag. That way you can collect your child at the end of the morning. So I'm just saying, so if it's really wet, we're going to try to warm it up today. Thank you, Miss Melba. I appreciate that. If you got your Bibles with you this morning, we're, we're looking at uh, Jonah chapter 3. Uh, for those of you that have been around a while, you know that we've been uh, slowly walking our way through the book of Jonah, and we come to a uh, particular uh, place in chapter 3 that is powerful in that it speaks to us about uh, a revival. And what I want to share with you today is... Uh, the, the sermon, heard that sparked a revival. I want to talk to you about those words that the, uh, the prophet Jonah spoke that sparked the greatest revival that uh, the world probably has ever known. All right, you got Jonah chapter 3. We're going to read the entire chapter, all 10 verses. Woo, big, big chapter. All right, so let's stand together as we honor the reading of the word of the Lord and listen to the story of Jonah's preaching to the Ninevites. In Jonah chapter 3, starting in verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go unto Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. So Jonah arose and went unto Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceeding great city of three days' journey. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, and he cried and said, Forty days. Nineveh shall be overthrown. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth with greatest of them, even to the least of them. For the word came unto the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, and he laid his robe from him, and he covered him with sackcloth and set in ashes. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast herd nor flock, taste anything, let them not feed nor drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God, yet, yea, that let them turn everyone from his evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. Who can tell if God will turn and repent and turn away from the fierce anger that we perish not? For God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Father, we ask that you would bless the reading and hearing of your word. Now, Father, I pray that you'd move me out of the way and hide me behind the cross, that you would bless the preaching of your word. And, Lord, that you would 
bless the receiving of the message, Lord, that it might stir in our hearts, that we might be reminded, O Lord, that perhaps God is speaking to us today and that He is calling us out of our complacency, out of our comfort, out of our evil. He's calling us out of where we are to where He wants us to be. Lord, may Your people hear and may we respond in spirit and in truth. Lord, may you be honored and glorified in everything that we say and everything we do. And may you show us, O Lord, your power. And that as you do, may we fall before you in repentance. And Lord, as we do, may we receive your blessing of grace. We ask it in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. So we begin our time today, I want to ask the question, what is revival? By revival, I don't mean something that can be scheduled, planned. As R.C. Sproul's once wrote, I'm always puzzled when I see church billboards announcing a coming revival. They give the times and the dates when the church will engage in revival. But I wonder... How can anybody possibly schedule a revival? For true revivals are provoked by the sovereign work of God through the stirring of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of His people. Today, when I speak of revival, I'm not talking about an evangelistic meeting. Meetings like that come and go. We've had hundreds of them. Without true revival ever breaking out. A true heaven-sent revival is much different from a modern evangelical meeting. You may ask, what is the difference? And I would say I can think of no better way to answer that question than by giving you the account of the great revival of Nineveh under the preaching of Jonah. Revival is a work of God. Sometimes it refers to an awakening because in revival, people are awakened afresh to who God is and what He would have them to do within their lives. In the past, revivals have never been something that man has worked up, but something that God has brought down. Revival has always been connected with a movement of great prayer and the preaching of the Word. God wakes up sleepy Christians those who have been somewhat idle or disobedient, and also calls and speaks to non-Christians as he reaches into their hearts because the church has become bold and zealous in witnessing to a lost and dying world. God is gracious to save in and through the witness of his people. I have, over the years, studied many, many of the great revivals down through the centuries. My favorite of all of them is found in in the stories of the great Welch revival of 1904 and 1905. It began with one person praying and seeking God's face for his country, which in turn into a small prayer meeting and then suddenly grew through the preaching and teaching of God's Word, 
that the Holy Spirit came down upon Wales in a way that brought about conviction and conversion among hundreds of thousands. It was almost as if overnight crime ceased to exist. Alcoholics left the bars and entire communities became transformed under the gospel of Christ. It was said that things changed so much that police officers lost uh, or had nothing to do. So they formed quartets and sang at church meetings during the evening hours. It was said that Wales was impacted by the gospel and the glory of God so much that it changed the whole country. Oh, how I have been praying for years that the Lord would do it again and do it here and do it now. As I look at what the condition of our country and our world is in, it is very evident that we are in need of a heaven-sent revival, a spirit-led revival that begins with someone with a burden on their heart to pray earnestly that would cause others to join them in prayer. For about eight years, a group of us have been meeting right here in this very room and praying at this very altar that God would do it again. And I believe that he wants to. I'm just praying that we will get ready for him to do it. So let us look today at our passage and marvel at what God once did. And would you pray with me? God, do it again. For spirit-led words though they are few, will amaze the world at what God will do. If you don't believe me, ask the Ninevites. In our text today, I want to jump down to verse 4. We've already looked at the other verses in the second chance God as we talked last week. Today I want you to see that revival demands a stern message. Listen to what Jonah chapter 3 verse 4 says. And as Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey, he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Revivals are subversive. And what I mean by that is they overthrow the status quo of unbelief. For this reason, Nineveh was the perfect place for God to work a great work of revival. Built by the great-grandson of Noah, Nineveh was one of the oldest and greatest cities of the ancient world. During the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh expanded significantly with impressive architecture and art. The city was a symbol of human accomplishment and pride and great wickedness and great sin. If God can work here, He can work anywhere. Doesn't that sound a little bit like America today? Doesn't that sound like us? A nation 
that was once founded under God now wants nothing to do with him. It's turned every which way wickedness can turn. Snub their nose at God and said, look at what we've accomplished and forgotten that everything that we have is a blessing from God. Jonah entered into the city, into the outskirts of this great city as God calls it, and began to preach his sermon of judgment. And the Bible tells us that Jonah said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now, I do believe that there was more to Jonah's message than these few words. I think this was the subject matter of Jonah's message. But is what God gave us to hold on to as to what he wanted to say to this wicked city. This only seems to be a glimmer of what message Jonah would have for them. Because God said to them in chapter 1, Jonah, I want you to go to the city Nineveh and preach unto them because their wickedness has come up before me. Now God is, he's not blinded by our wickedness. He's not fooled by our hypocrisy. He's not, he's not overlooking our failures. God sees them all. And he said to Jonah, Jonah, it's time for you to go and proclaim the need for repentance in this great city for their wickedness has come up to me. It is, it is in my face, and it's time for a change. I would say to you today that the wickedness of America is in the face of God, and it's time for us to repent. It's time for us to turn back to God. The conversion of the people of Nineveh was quite unexpected. Under normal conditions, a prophet like this who would have preached a message like that would have been killed immediately, stoned in the street, thrown into prison. We know this to be true because we have evidence of it in Acts. You remember the stoning of Stephen when he preached the message? You stiff-necked, uncircumcised, and hardened. You do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do you. And it cost him his life. Under normal conditions, Jonah would have experienced the same treatment that the Hebrew prophets received through the years. We find that in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 36 and 37, where it says cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were spun unasunder and were tempted, were slain with a sword, and desolate, afflicted, and tormented. The Bible records that the prophet of God, who is not afraid to stand up and say, There is sin in the camp, there's sin in the country, and God is sick of it. And we're the blame. Church, we are the blame. 
The world is doing what the world is naturally known to do. It's the church who is not evangelizing the world as we're called to do. And I know that's not comfortable to hear. It's not comfortable to say. But it's the truth. Jonah undoubtedly knew the danger that he would be in if he went and he preached judgment to the people of Nineveh. The truth is there is always a certain amount of danger connected with revival. People don't want to hear the truth of the Word of God. They don't want to hear that God says judgment is looming. They will attack the preacher. And they do it in various ways. History has proven that, and I'll give you an example or two. Whitfield, great preacher of his day, revival preacher. Whitfield was pelted with rotten eggs and tomatoes as he preached. That's why you were all frisked as you came in this morning. Just so if you were wondering, uh, I told the ushers to make sure there was no eggs or, you know, tomato. All right. Whitfield was pelted with these things, yet he stood in his black robe, streaming with filth, and proclaimed the message of judgment to the thousands who had come to hear him preach. In the time of this first great awakening in our country, and we should remember that the Apostle Paul was imprisoned and finally beheaded for the preaching on judgment and sin. Revival preaching always, always subjects the preacher to danger and ridicule. Jonah may have fled the first time not just because he didn't like the the people of Nineveh, but because he was afraid that he might die preaching to a people that he didn't like. That is not an uncommon feeling among preachers today. Fear. Fear that if they preach the truth of judgment coming, that there will be those that don't like us. Those that, what what does it say when you lose a friend on Facebook or whatever? Befriended? I, I don't know. I don't have it, so I don't know. Or they're afraid that they might lose members of their congregation. Or even more, they're afraid that they might lose Let me just remind you, you can fire me, but you're not taking my job away. My job is to preach the gospel. It doesn't matter where I do it, I do it. Preaching the word, the truth of the word, is what we're called to do. And Jonah, even though he rebelled and and ran in fear, and, 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 and for whatever reason, he came back. To preach the truth, the message. Revival demands a stern message. It's time to repent. It's time to turn from our wicked ways. It's time to turn from our hypocrisy. It's time to turn from our, our, our uh, lackadaisical way of doing Christian living. It's time for us to get real. But the people of Nineveh, They did not stone Jonah. They did not imprison him. But they listened to him. Instead, 
of rejecting the message. They listened and took heed to the message. The people of Nineveh, it says in verse 5, believed God and proclaimed a fast. They took him at his word and then they said, what must we do? Let's start doing something that is contrary to what we were doing before. And they fasted. Revival always requires a stern message. We want to preach on the love of God? We want to preach on the grace of God. But the problem is we need to be real. It is the sin of people that is keeping the love of God at bay and the hand of God's grace at bay until we deal with our sin. It's hard to preach the grace of God. Hard to preach the love of God. Because we don't understand it. We don't get it. Because we've not dealt with our sin. Revival also follows a sincere repentance. Revival will, will follow with sincere repentance. As we look at what the verses tell us here in verses 5 through 9, repentance is simply hatred towards sin and turning from it and turning unto the light of God and His mercy. The revival of Nineveh is beautifully illustrated here in this passage. If only Jonah preached... Those words, yet 40 days, and then the destruction of Nineveh. If that's all that he said, these people understood that that in order to cease the destruction, that there needed to be a change in their life. The first step is found in verse 5. They believed God. They believed God. Praise God, even through half-hearted, imbalanced preaching, God can bring a regeneration through the spiritual influence of His Spirit. I don't know about you, but I find hope in that. I find help in that. That that it's not about me being a great preacher. It's not about me being a great orator. It's about me just trusting in the work of the Holy Spirit to do what only He can do, and that is to convict you and me of our sin. Scripture highlights four parts of sincere response of revival found in the Ninevites, which serves as a model for us for true repentance today. First, repentant people believe God's word of judgment. You know, it's one thing to hear. It's one thing to hear the preacher say, God's going to deal with that sin. It's one thing to hear someone say, you got to get it together. you got to repent and turn back to God. It's one thing to hear it. It's another to believe it because belief says, I'm willing to do something with it. A lot of us are hearing, but we're not believing. 
It kind of reminds me of what, what Peter dealt with when, when the scoffers and, the, and, and all of the, the unbelievers said, listen, you've been preaching for 2,000 years that Jesus is coming again. And we see that people are born, people die, and generations come and generations go, but yet Christ has not shown. And Peter says, listen, just because God in His grace is long-suffering doesn't mean that He's not faithful to keep His Word. And just as we look at the fact that, that repentance is something that we're told we need to do and we're told what our sin is, isn't enough. We must do something with it. We must believe it. From whatever message Jonah was preaching, the Ninevites gathered enough of God's true identity about who he was to believe and to trust that he was merciful but to recognize God's sovereignty despite the predicament in which they themselves had gotten themselves into the Ninevites came to believe that they were living in God's world but not according to God's will They believed that they had the right to destroy, or that he had the right to destroy them because of who he was, not because of who they are. They didn't, weren't even surprised when they heard the message from Jonah. And why? Because the law was written on their hearts. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 2. The conscience, their conscience bore witness. Their, their thoughts accused them. In other words, that God instilled within all of us a, an understanding of what is right and wrong. And we know when we've been doing wrong and that we, we are going to be held accountable. And when the word of the Lord speaks, we know because we have experienced it in our own hearts. The most basic response to a confrontation with God is to believe Him. Without believing God, there is no salvation. The question is that each of us has to answer, do you believe God? Do you believe what He says? Listen, the message that we read out of Jonah chapter 3, 40 days and then yet God will destroy the city. That was for Nineveh, but yet God's character, His nature about sin has not changed. And His long-suffering patience has an end. And it's coming. Church, hear me when I tell you the patience of the Lord is growing thin. And He will act upon our sin. Do you believe God? Is he telling the truth when he says the unrepentant sinner will inherit or not inherit the kingdom of God? Yes. He speaks the truth. The question is, do you believe the truth? The second sign of true repentance, genuine repentance is repentant people grieve their wicked condition. Look at verse 8. 
But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily unto God. Yea, let them turn every one from their evil way and from the violence that is in their hands. The Ninevites' grief was blatant. They wore it. In ancient Near East, sackcloth and ashes uh, externalized the inner grief and mourning. Remember in the story of Job and the book of Job, when Job was going through his, in chapter 1, chapter 2, Job dressed himself in sackcloth and set in ashes to say, that which is mournful on the inside is externalized on the outside by my actions. By donning the stiff, unfashionable clothes and smudging their bodies with ashes, the Ninevites were putting on a show. They were using the body as an auxiliary to show what was going on in the soul. By fasting, they afflicted their bodies to bring them into harmony with their afflicted souls. It was as if the entire city was attending a funeral. The pervasive body and soul grief we usually reserve for personal tragedies like death is the right response to the rationalization that the unrepentant life will return, in turn, experience eternal death. For you and I who know our eternal existence, we should be mournful for those that do not know or know that if they don't repent, they will spend an eternity Picture the king in sackcloth and ashes. Sin isn't a joke to the repentant people. It's a tragedy. When confronted with their sin, the Ninevites were sorrowful, miserable, broken, grief-stricken over their sin. And they suddenly realized that their wickedness had offended God. And I want to say to you today that a similar experience of repentance is desperately needed in our land. Instead of being sorrowful, America is prideful. Instead of saying we're sorry for our sins, we're, we're celebrating our sin. Instead of turning away from our wickedness, we're now trying to make our kids think it's normal. Instead of repenting from the brokenness of a broken life before God, God, I need your grace, we're saying, God, I don't want you in my face. It is time. It is time that God sees the brokenness of his people. Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 says, If my people who are called by my name shall humble themselves. That word humble means to be broken, to mourn our sinfulness before God. You say, well, preacher, I'm not doing any of those things. 
We live among them. Isaiah said, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. By nature we are sinful and we dwell among the sinful people. And therefore the judgment of God befalls upon us as it does them. So shouldn't it mean that we should mourn as well? Shouldn't we be sorrowful for the sin instead of pride and, and, and celebrating the sin of our world? It breaks my heart when I see that we have pride gay days or we celebrate drunkenness and, and, and all of the other things and we say it's okay. And the church needs to change their ways and become more inclusive. My God said, it is my way or no way, not your way. And that's what repentance says. God, it's not my way, it's your way. And it breaks my heart that I wasn't going your way. Thirdly, repentant people put away their sin. Again, in verse 8 and verse 10, we see this truth unfold. And that a truly repentant person turns from their evil ways. Sinners cannot draw near to God simply by affirming He exists or by regretting their shortcomings. The Bible says, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. Listen, James says, cleanse your heart and your hands, you sinners. Purify that heart, you double-minded. Friends and parents and even church members might be fooled by a verbal profession of faith. A profession of, oh, I've repented and turned from my sins. But God is not. You may be able to fool others, but you don't fool him. The king told each and every Ninevite to turn from his evil ways and from the violence that was in their hands. What is your evil way that is keeping you from God? It could be as simply as I'm just not spending time in his word. I'm just not praying as I should. I'm just not talking to others about who he is and what he's done for me. What is the evil that is still in your hands that you have yet to let go of? What violence are you holding on to? My friends, we cannot expect salvation from God if we refuse to part with our sin. The very sin that Christ died for on Calvary's cross that said, I've come to set you free. Are you in debt or are you debt free? If you're still holding on to your sin, If you've laid it down at the feet of Jesus and took his blood, you are debt free. Again, we 
we must do that in order to receive forgiveness. Repentant people appeal to God for mercy. No law of the land, not even the king's words here, is going to save them. The king made a law. No one eats, no one drinks, no one does anything. Everybody stops and puts on sackcloth and ashes. But that wasn't going to save them. It's not the law of the land. It's the law of God that saves us from our sins. The thought of being rejected by God so horrified the Ninevites that they experienced God's mercy became their main concern. They sought after it. They were willing to do whatever it took to see if by chance God would show mercy. The king's decree, he asked the question, who can tell if God will turn or relent or turn away from the fierce anger so that we may not perish? Who's to say? Who's to say that if God's people were to get serious about this issue of sin in America today, that God wouldn't send another Holy Ghost revival across America that not only would change the landscape of America, but that would once again change the world. Who's to say? I can't say. I can't say that he won't. I, I, I remember reading and studying about uh, the, the revivals of the late 1700s, early 1800s, the newspaper in America wrote that when America had moved out west and all of the perversion and all of the things that were going on, the headlines of the newspaper said, America has gone too far to ever be redeemed. I can't say that. I won't say that. Because I believe that God can and He will if we will. If we will cry, if we will turn, if we will let go, if we will mourn correctly over our sin, the sin of our people, God will show compassion. Think about it this way. Why would God send someone to tell you he was going to destroy you if he didn't attend to his grace. Why wouldn't he just said, I am sick and tired? There. You see, the Bible tells us that this is not the first time that God has sent out a word of warning, judgment. You see, the Bible tells us in Genesis that, that God looked down upon the world and he said, they disgust me. I'm just going to wipe them out. And he found a man by the name of Noah. He said, Noah, because of the righteousness of your life, I'm going to spare you and your family, and I want you to tell the people that judgment is coming while you're building a boat on dry land. They 
didn't believe, the Bible says, until God shut the door and the rains began to fall and the water began to rise. Don't make the same mistake. God keeps his word. And the sin over the sin around us. Even this modest hope should quicken you and me and stir in us to cast ourselves upon His grace. Why assume that they must remain unsaved? The Ninevites didn't. I believe that God wants to send a revival to redeem more not just to clean up our sin, but to redeem us, to redeem those that are lost. Peter said the long-suffering of the Lord is that none, his desire that none should perish. The revival of God is that none would have to perish, but that all could come to repentance. Matthew chapter 12 and verse 41 it says the men of Nineveh will rise up in the judgment which, with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and indeed, indeed a greater than Jonah is here Jesus was talking about the fact that he had come with a message a message of repentance he said the people of Nineveh will rise up that generation of people about that generation as I close. That generation people will, will stand and say, we listened, we heard, and we repented. Why didn't you? We listened to ugly old Noah, Jonah and Jesus came to tell you. Why didn't you turn? Why didn't you repent? Why didn't you surrender? Lastly, revival demands God's mercy. Look at verse 10. God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. The Lord is not the God merely of second chances as he was for Noah, or Noah and, and for Jonah and for you and for I, but the God who accepts even those who have squandered their lives living in God's repenting raises some important questions. Did God change course? Is God himself repenting? Answer these questions can help us better understand God and how he saves the sinners. I'm going to give you just a highlight and then I'm going to give you an advertisement. 
come on Wednesday nights to our Wednesday night adult study where we're actually studying this very thing. Who is God and why does he do what he does? And you'll learn more. But let me give you just a couple of things to answer that. First, the rest of the scripture assures us that God never adjusts his intentions based upon newfound information. In other words, God doesn't say, wait a minute, why didn't I see that coming? For he says, I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from the ancient of times, things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasures. Indeed, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. God's mercy upon the Ninevites was not a new thing. It wasn't a change of direction. It was the evidence of God's heart. He sent a man to tell them to repent in hopes that they would listen. God sent a man to tell the world to repent that they would listen. His name is Jesus. And his message was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. And then he went to a cross and died for you and me. Second, God's judgment is always conditional. He promised Adam and Eve that the day that they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. But did they? No, he meant... They're going to die in ways in which they won't like it. It wasn't a sudden death, but it was a coming judgment. God presents judgment as conditional consequences of disobedience and unbelief. God graciously sets before us life and death, blessings and curses. His judgment is always conditional and conditioned. Live in your sin and you will experience the judgment of God. Repent and you will receive the mercy and grace of God. And then third, our last point, God didn't change his mind. Not at all. He didn't have to because he changed Nineveh. God didn't have to change his mind. He didn't have to change his way because he changed the very people that he sent the message of repentance to. The Ninevites changed. The proud, the wicked, the atheistic people against whom he had threatened judgment ceased to exist. And they were made into a new creation by God's grace. There's a three-letter word in Scripture. It's a transitional word, but. The Bible tells us, for the wages of sin is but the gift of God is eternal life that's exactly what he was telling the children of Nineveh the wages of sin is death but if you repent there is mercy and grace to be had they turn from their evil ways because he changed them from the inside out. God had answered for Nineveh a similar prayer that Jeremiah prayed, Turn us back to you, O Lord, and we will be restored, renewed, 
and renew our days as of old. That's the God in which we serve. He is a God of judgment, but he is a God of mercy. Some people belittle revival. They simply say, what good is revival? What does it really do? The church, after a period of time, is as dead as it ever was before. They may be so. However, think of the case of Nineveh. Schofield Bible, in its notes on Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1, where God finally judges Nineveh, has this to say. Under the preaching of Jonah in B.C. 862, the city and the king had turned to God. But in the time of Nahum, more than a century later, the city had wholly apostatized or walked away from God. Nahum 1.1 tells us a century later, a hundred years later, a hundred plus years, Nineveh had regressed to the very place that they were when Jonah preached to them. This shows us that revival only affects the generation that experiences them. Many people are converted during a time of revival, and that is a good thing. The lost are now found. The, the unsaved are saved. The, the, the hell-bound are now heaven-bound. They have eternal life. But this has little effect to no effect on the next generation. Each generation must seek God for its own revival. Each individual must have his own conversion. I don't know if you know this, but America has not experienced a national revival since 1859. The last known revival, spiritual, God-sent, heaven-breathed revival, the revival of 1859, the generation in 2021, no good. No more than after a century later did the revival of Jonah's day affect Nineveh. The people of Nineveh turned away from God in their generation after the great revival. 150 years after the revival under Jonah, the prophet Nahum said of Nineveh, Woe to this bloody city. It is all full of lies and robberies. The prey departeth not. And it shall come to pass that they that look upon thee shall flee from thee and say, Nineveh is laid waste. And God sent a judgment upon that great city. Yes, our nation has experienced great revivals in the past. But I did the math. It's been 164 years since the last major revival that came to an English-speaking world. I come to the conclusion time is running out.
Judgment is coming to us as it came to Nineveh 150 years later. And we're being called to flee from the wrath to come. To fall Church, the message of Jonah ring in your ears. Judgment is coming if we don't repent. There is nothing that you and I can do to stop revival from coming if God wants to send it. But if we don't receive there is nothing that you and I can do that will keep God from sending judgment upon us. It is up to us. I today, we cry out, or will we hold out for judgment? It is where we are today. As churches, as a nation, as a world. Our God has not changed. Sin has come to us. Seeking. I want to ask you to search your heart. Search your heart. Surrendered your all to Him. All of God. Come to in search of a sinner. Save me today. Set me free from Make me Help me to let go of my weakness and cling to your righteousness that I might be Thank you.